How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast and audio-guided walk featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders, all set within one of three square miles. Ooh. Today's episode is the conclusion to the story of John Sweeney, an abusive, violent and dangerously disturbed man whose drug-fueled paranoia and insane jealousy of his girlfriends led to a bloody trail of body parts across Europe. The full extent of his brutality remains a mystery, even to this day. Murder Mile contains graphic details of abuse, torture and death, which may offend, as well as realistic sounds, so that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 24, Canal Killers, John Sweeney, Part 2. Today, I'm not within one square mile of Soho, Paddington, King's Cross, or even the Regent's Canal. I'm 256 miles away in Holland's beautiful capital city of Amsterdam, a coastal city crammed full of architectural marvels from the medieval times to the modern age, crisscrossed by laid-back cycleways, stunning bridges, and interconnected by an intricate canal system. Unlike stuffy old London, Amsterdam is so liberal. Not only is it chock full of history and high art, but it also has three museums dedicated to prostitution, procreation and penises. And also, I'm guessing, a kids cannabis creche, a dildo recycling service, six streets named after syphilitic sailors, a free orgasm vending machine, 
a shop which sells willy warmers woven from old pubes, and a publicly funded institute promoting the complete history of the anus. And as I sit outside a snowy cafe, chomping on pancakes, supping on wheat beers, and toking on an entirely legal spliff, although I'm nowhere near Battlebridge Basin, where on the 19th of February 2001, ten dismembered body parts of John Sweeney's ex-girlfriend were found submerged in the region's canal. This is where the last episode ended, and where the new episode begins. On Monday the 27th of March, 1989... Having served just half of his 12-month sentence for violently attacking his girlfriend with a half-kilo foot-long claw hammer on the stairwell of her Austrian flat, an horrific attack which left her riddled with pain, plagued by flashbacks and crippled with anxiety, 34-year-old John Sweeney walked free from Justice Dalt's Wein Erdberg prison in Vienna. Having spent two weeks in hospital, his terrified victim, Melissa Halstead, whose bruises had healed, but whose skull was still fractured and required a daily dose of painkillers to dull her constant headaches, was safe from his anger, jealousy and violence. And to protect her from any further danger, the judge also issued Sweeney with a 10-year deportation order, which not only ensured that he stayed away from Melissa, but also banned him from ever returning to Austria for the next decade. And as Sweeney breathed in that fresh Austrian air, the cool mountain wind tickling his bright red beard, a stunningly beautiful blonde lady kissed him on the lips. Quite what she saw in him, nobody knows. But this bright, bubbly, American ex-fashion model who believed his cries and his lies that he was a changed man and had personally pleaded with the judge for her boyfriend's early release. Melissa Halstead picked up Sweeney from prison, her car packed with their bags, and outside of the protection of the deportation order, they headed off to Holland, ready to begin a new life together. But those six months of incarceration and solitude had done nothing to cure him of his addiction to drink, his hunger for drugs, his jealous streak, his paranoia, and his obsession with torture and violence. Sweeney was a sick man. And as much as Melissa believed that he loved her, really he was controlling her. As much as she insisted that he was protecting her, really he was assaulting her. And as laid back as their new home city was, with its late night bars, legalized drugs and liberal attitudes to sex, Amsterdam was the worst place for a jealous, paranoid, sex-obsessed alcoholic and heavy cannabis user, who also dabbled in LSD and was hopelessly addicted to heroin. Although he did a few odd jobs as a carpenter, most of which funded his habit, 
Melissa's career as a photographer and makeup artist paid for the rent, the food, everything. And as the months went on, so did the beatings, all of which Melissa covered over with weak excuses and heavy mascara. As a minor blessing, Melissa's occupation perfectly suited her free-spirited nature, which gave her ample opportunity to see the world and meet new people, in an unpredictable and unscheduled routine, which meant that she was often away and out of contact for days, weeks and even months. But the longer she was gone, the more Sweeney drank, the blacker his moods got and the more his jealousy festered. During the last week of April 1990, with Europe still in a state of celebration, five months after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Cold War, Melissa Halstead returned home to Kroemval in the centre of Amsterdam, and the basement flat she shared with her violent and controlling boyfriend. Her plan? To try and leave Sweeney forever. On Thursday the 3rd of May 1990, 50 miles from Amsterdam, in the Dutch coastal city of Rotterdam, a green army surplus kit bag was found partially submerged and floating down the Vestersingal Canal. Seeing the 30-inch canvas bag bobbing up and down, two keen-eyed police constables assumed it was either stolen luggage or dumped rubbish. But as both men huffed and heaved the heavy hessian sack onto the stony towpath, as gallons of canal water drained out, still the bag was a dead weight. In an unnervingly similar incident to one which would take place at Battlebridge Basin on the Regent's Canal almost a decade later, as the police unzipped the bag, they witnessed what would become the grisly calling card of a maniac. Inside, the naked torso of a mid-thirties female had been hacked up, folded in half and forced into a tight duffel bag. Across her ankles and neck were the rough jagged scars where Using what carpenters would refer to as a rip carcass saw, he had sawn through the tibia and fibula of both lower legs and the cervical curve of her neck, severing her spine and decapitating her hands and her head. And although her body had been bound with a rough braided sisal rope, the kind used on building sites Having been submerged in water for a little over a week, already her pale, discoloured skin had slipped free of its binds. The police were at a loss as to who this woman was, as whoever had murdered her had made a conscious effort to destroy any evidence of who she was. And with no clothes, no bag, no ID, no hands, no head, and almost all of the DNA evidence having washed away into the canal, 
All police had was a torso with no name, no face, no eyes, no teeth, no birthmarks, no operation scars, and no fingerprints. And having no head, police couldn't even identify her by the telltale skull fracture, having recently been attacked by her boyfriend using a carpenter's claw hammer. And so, with no missing persons report fitting her description, and her hands and head having never been found, Melissa Halstead was marked as a Jane Doe and buried in an unmarked grave in a Rotterdam cemetery. Exactly how and where Melissa died, we shall never know. As being so hard-working and free-spirited, her family in Ohio only realised that she was missing on the 2nd of November 1990, when she failed to call her mother to wish her a happy birthday. And so they hired a local lawyer to investigate her disappearance. But by then, it was too late. Her basement flat was totally empty, meticulously cleaned, and its former occupants were gone. Melissa had vanished. Sweeney had returned to England. And once again, he went looking for love. And her name was Delia Barmer. Having met Sweeney in a kooky Camden pub in early 1991, although Delia was instantly smitten with his cheeky-faced Liverpudlian, who was artistic, well-travelled, and lived an almost idyllic bohemian lifestyle, together they truly seemed like an odd couple. As she was a petite, timid blonde, who worked as a nurse saving lives, but had an irrational fear of all electrical devices, and he was a tall, red-headed psychopath, with one murder and one attempted murder in his past, and at least one murder still to come. Being honest, sweet and trusting, it wasn't long before Delia let Sweeney move into her home, a ground-floor flat in Leighton Grove, Camden which was situated just one mile from the Regent's Canal and barely one and a half miles from Battlebridge Basin, where the body parts would later be found. And as bizarre as their flat was, with Delia having covered every phone, radio and television and cushions for fear that they caused cancer, the epitome of disturbing was how Sweeney had decorated the flat. Not only with beer cans, spent spliffs and crack pipes, but also a pet tarantula, a large stash of horror magazines and a wall packed full of morbid, self-drawn artworks depicting axes, blood, torture, body parts and headless female corpses. As with Melissa and Anne, It wasn't long before life was being dominated by his paranoid, deluded jealousy. As Sweeney controlled every aspect of Delia's life. And what started with a never-ending succession 
of emotional blackmail, mental abuse and physical assaults over a four-year period soon descended into an incident of unimaginable horror. In November 1994, with Delia having attempted to leave her psychopathic partner after a series of violent beatings which left her bruised, blooded and fearing for her life, as punishment, Sweeney tied the tiny helpless woman to the frame of her bed, using the same kind of tough braided sisal rope he had bound Melissa's lifeless body with. And in a sickening ordeal which lasted 48 hours, Delia was repeatedly raped, strangled, beaten and tortured, as Sweeney held a gun to her head, threatening to cut out her tongue with a kitchen knife if she screamed. Delia later stated, I could see the dark, empty, evil look coming into his eyes and his hands start to shake. And with the cold steel of the handgun pressed firmly against her head, Sweeney pulled the trigger till the hammer went click. His empty threat made all the more real as he loaded the gun before her eyes and boasted about how the last girlfriend who tried to leave him was found floating in a Rotterdam canal, her head and hands hacked off, using the rip carcass saw he kept in his bag. But just like his ex-wife, Anne Bramley, he didn't kill Delia Barmer. He couldn't. He wouldn't. And no one knows why, except Sweeney. Instead, Having left her bruised, bloodied, terrified and tied to the bed, Sweeney fled to Germany. But with the police now aware of his details, description and his aliases, he was arrested just a few days later, deported back to the UK and was held on remand at Pentonville Prison, a Category B prison on the Caledonian Road. Just a ten-minute walk from Battlebridge Basin. Traumatised by the horrific ordeal, Delia confided her fears to a friend, and in an odd premonition of what was to come, she said, He will do something. He will cut me to bits, just like he had Melissa. On Thursday the 22nd of December, 1994, just three days before Christmas, John Patrick Sweeney was released on bail from Pentonville Prison. A few hours later, with the winter sun having set, a cold wind blowing and the first few flakes of snow settling, having finished her shift as a nurse, Delia cautiously cycled into Leighton Grove. Lined on both sides with three-storey townhouses, the darklit street was empty, only illuminated by the flicker of TV sets, the twinkle of Christmas lights and the dull orange glow of a handful of street lights. Swinging open the iron gate, Delia pushed her bicycle along the cold stone path, 
up to the concrete step at the foot of the front door of her ground floor flat. Everything was quiet, calm and safe. Or so it seemed. As Delia nervously fumbled her keys into the lock, from the shadows, Sweeney pounced. With arms flailing, his eyes wild and his teeth gritted, Sweeney began slashing and hacking at the tiny helpless woman, her trembling hands defensively up to her screaming face. As gripped in both fists, he held a kitchen knife and a two-kilo axe. Delia later recalled, I saw my finger fly through the air and I thought, that's it, I don't want to live anymore. In a sustained, sickening and frenzied attack on the doorstep of her own home, Delia Barmer, the five foot three inch nurse, who was as timid as she was tiny, suffered multiple lacerations to her hands, arms, legs face and chest. As well as two broken arms, deep stab wounds to her thighs and breast, an axe wound to her head, a punctured lung and the little finger of her left hand entirely severed. And lying in a puddle of her own blood, struggling to breathe as Sweeney stood over her, hacking away at the petrified woman. Delia could have died but didn't. Hearing her screams, her neighbour, Giles Allen, dashed out of the house, and armed with a baseball bat, Giles chased Delia's attacker down the street, as the five-foot-ten-inch frame of Sweeney vanished into the shadows. Being the kind of coward who's too scared to pick on someone his own size. Although physically, emotionally and psychologically scarred, for the six years that Sweeney was on the run from the police, friends would caution Delia to watch her back, knowing that the demented redhead had unfinished business and would come looking for her. But for Delia, she didn't care. Her life was over, and she'd reply, It's too late. I'm not scared anymore. Because I'm not me anymore. When interviewed by the police, Delia told them everything. About the abuse, the torture, the rapes, about Sweeney, and his confession that he'd murdered Melissa Halstead in Holland. And as the police examined Sweeney's belongings in Delia's Leighton Grove flat, they saw... Not only his deeply disturbing collection of self-drawn artwork of footless, handless and headless women, drenched in a pool of blood, whose limbs had been hacked off, but also a green army surplus duffel bag, which contained a ground sheet, bin bags, sisal ropes, gaffer tape, a claw hammer and a rip carcass saw. A psychopath's toolkit to dispose of a human body and ensure that no one would ever identify it. By Christmas 1994, four and a half years after the grisly discovery of an unidentified woman's torso 
which had been found floating in Holland's Vestersingal Canal. Even though the family of Melissa Halstead had hired an investigator and had reported her missing, no one knew where she was, what had happened to her, or that the headless body buried in an unmarked grave in a Rotterdam cemetery was her. And although six years after that, the ten dismembered body parts found wrapped in six separate bags at Battlebridge Basin on the Regent's Canal bore an uncanny similarity to the disposal of Melissa Halstead, the body in the Regent's Canal was not Delia Barmer. That woman was still alive, for now, as she was yet to become the future ex-girlfriend of John Sweeney. On the run, and desperate to keep his head down, Sweeney bunked in the Kentish town flat of his old friend, Kevin Pratt. During which he bragged about his horrific attack on Delia, he confessed that he'd killed Melissa, and lied that there was a £10,000 reward for his capture. Needing to move on, he headed north to Northampton to pay an uninvited visit to his ex-wife Anne and his kids Michael and Tracy. Staying the night, Sweeney proceeded to drink and get stoned as he told Anne that he had done something really bad which would make your hair stand on end. But this time he confessed to the murder of Melissa Halstead and two others. Hitching a lift to his home city of Liverpool to visit his mum, Sweeney used this downtime to taunt the detectives who were desperately searching for him. And on Monday the 2nd of January 1995, just 11 days after the terrifying attack on Delia Barmer, Sweeney sent a letter to the police at Scotland Yard, bragging about his crimes, boasting about how they'd never catch him, and in a cruel play on words, describing his assault on Delia as an accident, spelling the first part of the word A-X-E. Having run out of options, and being an easy-to-spot red-headed Liverpudlian carpenter, Sweeney fled the UK and headed into Europe, where he'd spent the bulk of his life, learning to stay under the radar by living in hostels, working for cash-in-hand jobs, and using an assumed name like Joe Johnson, Joe Carroll and Michael Fawcett. And even though he needed to stay near drug dealers to feed his habit of LSD, cannabis and heroin, in the circles he moved in, this was not difficult. And so, for the next six years, John Patrick Sweeney disappeared. What happened during these years, where he went, what he did and who he saw, nobody knows. But by the turn of the last millennium, in early 2000, John Sweeney had returned to England. And once again, he was looking for love. And her name was Paula Fields.
As the youngest of 11 children, born into a lower working class family, in one of the most deprived areas of Liverpool, at the end of the 1970s, life for Paula Fields and her siblings was tough. After the closure of the shipyards, mass unemployment and poverty followed. As a badly underfunded council struggled to provide even the most basic of necessities, such as heat, warmth, food and housing, for thousands of struggling families. And yet for Paula, her troubles had only just begun. Aged nine years old, Paula's mother died leaving herself and her ten older siblings to be split up, with some farmed off to different relatives and others placed into care. And growing up in an era dominated by demolition, tension, closures and the Toxteth race riots, with no education nor qualifications, Paula was desperate to become a good mum. So after the birth of her three children, Paula made the brave step and moved to London to seek a better life for her boys. But life down south wasn't any better, and it would only get worse. As a single mum, who struggled to look after two of her three boys, both under five, she worked shifts in a local laundrette to scrape together enough money to fund a single room in a local flea pit hotel and halfway house called the Highbury Hotel. But within two years, being broke, hungry and desperate, Paula had turned to prostitution, was hopelessly addicted to crack cocaine and both of her boys had been taken into care. By the autumn of 2000, as a homeless, penniless sex worker and drug addict, with a chaotic lifestyle, a criminal record, and absolutely zero chance of ever getting her kids back, Paula truly was at her lowest ebb, when in the Kilburn flat of his brother Tony, she first met and fell in love with a bushy-bearded, red-headed carpenter who went by the nickname of Scouse Joe. And being instantly smitten with this cheeky-faced Liverpudlian, who had a semi-regular income, access to drugs, and had a rented flat in Digby Crescent in Holloway, Paula moved in to her new boyfriend's flat, spending her days and nights off her face, surrounded by his pet tarantula, a bizarre collection of violent art, and his green canvas duffel bag full of ropes, hammers and saws. As with Anne, Melissa and Delia, it wasn't long before her life was being dominated by his paranoid, deluded jealousy, as Sweeney controlled every aspect of her life, and what started with a never-ending succession of emotional blackmail, mental abuse and physical assaults soon descended into death. At 9.30am on Friday the 15th of December 2000, 
With the walls of the cramped one-bedroom flat echoing to the regular sounds of shouting, swearing and domestic assaults, Paula Fields was last seen walking into Sweeney's flat at Digby Road in Holloway. Just two days after it is believed that she discovered his true identity, and two days before, Sweeney would move out. Paula was never seen alive again. On the morning of Monday the 19th of February 2001, during the half-term holidays, two schoolboys were fishing along the banks of Battlebridge Basin at the back of King's Cross, when their hook snagged on something partially submerged and reeled in a heavy black bin bag, which reeked of rotting flesh. Only this time, with Sweeney having cut up his victim into ten separate chunks, hacked through her wrists, elbows, knees, ankles and neck, with the jagged tearing of his rib carcass saw, wrapped each piece in bin bags and weighed them down with bricks, to stop her body parts from bobbing on the surface of the canal, as Melissa had. Sweeney meticulously cleaned the bath in his Digby Crescent flat, burned all of Paula's belongings, and moved out. And with the corpse having no clothes, no bag, no ID, no hands, no feet, no head, and almost all of the DNA evidence having washed away over the two months it had spent festering in the water. All the police had was a torso with no name, no face, no eyes, no teeth, no birthmarks, no operation scars, no fingerprints, and no missing persons report matching her description. Just like Melissa, Paula would be just another unclaimed body, buried in an unmarked grave, as once again, Sweeney got away with murder. Or he would have done, if he hadn't made a big mistake. He had left one victim alive. Following recent sightings of John Sweeney in London, Police issued all constables with a description of a red-headed Liverpudlian carpenter who lived under various aliases and was wanted for the rape, imprisonment, assault and the attempted murder of an Australian nurse called Delia Barmer. On Friday the 23rd of March 2001, a red-headed carpenter who went by the name of Joe Johnson was spotted working on a building site in Shoe Lane, Hoban. Knowing Sweeney's history of violence and being wanted for firearms offences, the police took no chances, armed officers were called in, and Sweeney was arrested. He had a 7-inch knife in his waistband and a loaded 9mm Luger pistol in his locker. Searching his new flat at Charteris Road in Finsbury Park, police found two loaded sawn-off shotguns, a makeshift machete, a homemade garrote wire, a large stash of bullets, a baseball bat, an axe 
bin bags, cable ties, a ground sheet, a green canvas duffel bag full of ropes, hammers and saws, and over 200 deeply disturbing self-drawn pictures and poems, depicting the violent rape, torture, dismemberment and death of various women. On one painting, Sweeney had written a poem which read, Poor old Melissa, chopped up in bits, food to feed the fish, Amsterdam was the pits. For the attempted murder of Delia Barmer, John Patrick Sweeney was sentenced to a 10-year term behind bars at Gartry Prison in Leicestershire. And as much as Sweeney had bragged to the police about the many murders he had committed over the last 20 years, including a devoted mid-30s churchgoer called Sue, a mid-40s Brazilian called Irani who lived in North London, and a late-30s Colombian called Maria, all of whom were his ex-girlfriends, and have never been seen since, as well as supposedly two German men who apparently he had caught having sex with Melissa. With very little evidence, the police couldn't arrest him for murder. But then, another victim of John Sweeney would provide a vital clue, which would put Sweeney away forever. And she would do so from beyond the grave. On the 12th of June 2007, following advances in genetic technology, Dutch police uploaded the DNA profile of an unidentified female whose decapitated body had been found 18 years earlier floating in a Rotterdam canal. In a joint task force between Scotland Yard and the Dutch authorities, Police not only identified the bodies of Melissa Halstead and Paula Fields, but were able to connect their methods of death, disposals, and the identity of their killer. And although the remains of Paula Field and Melissa Halstead were returned to their families, neither their hands, feet, nor heads were ever found. On Monday the 4th of April 2011, 54-year-old John Patrick Sweeney was found guilty of the murders of Melissa Halstead, Paula Fields and the attempted murder of Delia Barmer and was given a whole life sentence, meaning that he will never be released. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. As mentioned before, if you are the victim of domestic violence, or you have inflicted violence against a loved one, never be afraid to speak out, as professional help is only a phone call away. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult with no name. Next week's episode is the first of a four-part series on the Blackout Ripper. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger. Feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hello? Hello? <gasps> Hello? Hello, friends. Welcome to the Extra Mile. Uh, most people have probably switched off by now. 
For those of you who are listening to this and haven't heard it before, this is the extra mile. This is a special secret part that I put at the end of each episode, of which I discuss the case and some interesting things that you might not know about. Uh, there's no music, there's no sound effects, it's not scripted, it's just me talking, uh, which is why I sound different and faster than normal. Right, just some quick things. Um, really, I just wanted to say a big thank you to all of you. Um, when I actually did the original Murder uh, Extra Mile, uh, those two episodes a couple of weeks ago. Really, that was just a chance for me to uh, fill in some time while I was researching. I just didn't want to leave you with uh, empty space. I wanted to give you an episode. Um, really didn't know how they would go out, how they would work, whether people would like them. To be honest, I thought most people would ignore them. Um, I've had such fabulous feedback from everyone on those episodes that that is why extra mile is now a permanent feature at the end of each uh episode from now on it's, it's going to continue and for patreon listeners i'm doing an extra mile for the first 20 episodes only for patreon listeners sorry guys i've got to give the patron listeners something something interesting um so to all of you i just wanted to say thank you your fabulous feedback has led to extra mile and you know what? It's a part of the, the podcast that I really love. I love doing this. It's so freeing. It's so liberal. Oh God. It's, oh, it's not, it's not a nightmare to, to record. <laughs> right. Um, so this episode, uh, John Sweeney, very difficult. Um, just to clarify something from the start. Uh, I wasn't in Amsterdam. You probably know that. Um, it's not cost effective for me to fly all the way to Amsterdam. Um, to uh, record the sounds from there so this is probably the first time i'm going to cheat this this was all just recorded sounds uh, that I borrowed from other people obviously it makes sense because i can't afford to fly to amsterdam but for every other um background sound that's used on the murder mile it's all original it's all recorded at murder locations i physically go out there and i spend i spend days just recording different sounds to make it authentic right <sighs> The case of John Sweeney. I hope you are okay with that. That was a pretty grisly one. Interesting facts in the story. Something I couldn't get into the podcast because there was no way to segue it in. Was something that I hope some of you have noticed. Is that Sweeney murdered Melissa Halstead in their flat in Amsterdam. But the body was dumped in Rotterdam. In a canal in Rotterdam. Now those canals aren't connected. So... How did Sweeney get the body 50 miles away into Rotterdam? I mean, firstly, why didn't he dump the body in Amsterdam? That's a big question. Secondly, in order, I've worked this out, in order for him to get from the flat in Amsterdam to the canal in Rotterdam, he had to, it was a one hour journey. It was a 10 minute walk from his flat to Amsterdam's train station. Uh, and then it was about an hour's journey on the train, which means he was carrying a six stone green duffel bag on the train with him, which c contained the dismembered torso of Melissa Halstead. Then it was another 10 minute walk on the other side. That's a pretty weird journey. Imagine doing that, having to carry a, a corpse on a tr I mean, that shows the psychopathy of this man that he's, you know, he's happy to sit on a train with a corpse in a bag. Very weird. Um, Still to this day, we don't know where he got rid of the head, the hands, the feet. Uh, police, they think that it was either, uh, they either held sentimental value or they were, or, you know, he deliberately destroyed them elsewhere so the victims couldn't be identified. So neither Paula Fields nor Melissa Halstead's head, hands, and in the case of Paula Fields' feet, 
uh, none of those were ever found. So we don't know where they are. But obviously, uh, during that case, he learnt his lesson from uh, the murder of Melissa Halstead to Paula Fields because he cut up the body even more and he weighed them down with bricks and individually bound them. I think with all the gases from the decomposition, the body of Melissa Halstead, even though it was quite heavy, when he put it in the water, after a couple of days, it starts to de decompose. The bag fills with gas and it floats to the surface. Um, exactly the same as we'd seen with uh, Marta Ligman, where Thomas Kochik had put her body inside a suitcase. Even though that's like, that's like a seven, eight stone woman in a suitcase, even though you put it in a suitcase and put it in water there's still enough air inside to make the suitcase float and the decomposition gases makes the bag, bag float even more so uh, obviously Sweeney had learned his lesson and decided to weigh down the body parts with bricks and make the body parts smaller as well um, one thing that I should note uh, on here uh, is that Sweeney held uh, Delia Obama hostage with a gun uh, it was a handgun even though in, I know this is hard to believe, in November 1994, it was still legal to have a handgun in the United Kingdom. Obviously, we got rid of, uh, it was illegal to have rifles, ex except for sport. And, you know, you, you had to have a proper license, stuff like that. You could still buy a handgun and legally have a handgun in 1994. But obviously, in 1996, we had the awful Dunblane Massacre, um, which for people outside the United Kingdom... Uh, was uh, Britain's first, last and only school shooting. And immediately after that, the government said, right, that's it, we're not putting up with this anymore. Uh, and handguns were outlawed from that point onwards. So when John Sweeney uh, held a gun to Delia's head, um, <coughs> it was a legal gun, he was legally allowed to have it, but apparently he didn't have a licence for it. So that's why it was a... a uh, he was wanted for firearms offences. Uh, thank God we don't have guns in this country anymore. Um, I didn't realise that we still had them in, a, in my lifetime. And uh, it's nice to live in a country where you can feel safe. Um, right. So uh, looking back into the early life of John Sweeney, uh, where did this mania come from? That's something that I find really baffling because there's very little information about his early life. Um, he doesn't talk about it anymore. He didn't talk about it before either. And what he does talk about is it's lies. He makes up a lot of stuff. So it's hard to know where stuff comes from. <coughs> One thing we do know uh, is that he had a stutter. Now, um, maybe he was bullied as a child. I mean, it was said that he was. Maybe this was quite bad bullying. Um, so maybe that's where some of his mania comes from his, his hatred of people maybe he was bullied by girls because of his stutter maybe he couldn't pull girls at a very early age because he was stuttering maybe that's it i don't know maybe it's as simple as that is that some girl when he was five or six years old turned him down for a kiss because he was a stutterer who knows um but they do often say that children who have a stutter it's not a natural thing it's kind of it, it's uh Often they say it's due to corrective changes in childhood. So uh, if a child is forced, is left-handed and is forced to write right-handed, uh, sometimes what they do, or if they have corrective aids on their legs or on their teeth, um, just like King George the Fourth, Remember in the King's speech, he stuttered a lot because he had corrective um, 
aids on his legs. He was forced to walk straight and he was forced to write right-handed when he was a lefty. So what they do say is that children have a tendency to overcompensate. So if a parent or a doctor forces them to walk straighter or with a different hand, that unconsciously a stutter develops. And that's a kind of a new a new deficiency that they've accidentally adopted. Uh, and that's a stutter. So does that mean that Sweeney um, had uh, corrective surgery on his teeth, on his legs? Was he abused as a child? Who knows? This is something that we shall never know. Um, his mother was very protective of him uh, right up until the end uh, she denied that he had committed any murders at all right up to the end she always protected him so quite clearly she was quite an overbearing and very overprotective mother uh, from details that I've read um, which does seem to be a very common trait with serial killers if you look at people like Fred West and Dr Shipman um, they all had overbearing very protective mothers so basically they felt they could get away with anything because mummy was going to be there to protect them was this the case with john sweeney we don't know really don't know there's very little details um maybe john sweeney because of his stutter maybe he suffered a head injury as a child um, this again something i can't work out i can't find out whether this actually happened um but if you go to my website murdermiletours.com uh, look at the blogs I did a big blog recently about serial killers who suffered head injuries as a child because there is there does seem to be a patch between uh, just before their teens so kind of uh, between six and, 6 and 7 and kind of about 10, 11, 12 when many serial killers were hit on the head um, many of them by swings which is a really weird thing so a head injury can lead to um, psychological problems. Not with all children, but, you know, it can with the development of some serial killers. It can be a next step. Um, interesting with John Sweeney, uh, obviously he went to Europe a couple of times, and these moments are real blank spots in his history. What he did there, who he met, we have no idea. Has he murdered more people? What do you reckon? Do you think it's possible? I do. I think it's entirely possible. I think even though he brags about how many people he's murdered, I think he's murdered a lot more. Because look at look at the psychopathy of the man. He's every time he loves women. He loves having women around him. He draws them in. He's he, for some reason they seem to be very attracted to him. But the second they try and leave him. He becomes violent, he becomes dangerous. He's murdered two that we know of. He's attempted to murder two others. So are there other women out there who've either been attacked or murdered by Sweeney? I think that's highly likely, very highly likely. Um, one other interesting thing that I maybe you've noticed in this episode, um, almost all of John Sweeney's attacks happened in or around November and December. And I don't know why. And I'm wondering whether whether he suffers because obviously he's a drug addict. Obviously he's suffering from various mental illnesses. Does he also suffer from seasonal seasonal affectiveness disorder? Does his depression get worse in the winter months? 
I don't know. It's, it's just an idea. It's not something I've really thought heavily about and I haven't got the research to back it up. But, do you know, could be something to think about. Anyway, that was uh, the the last of the Canal Killer series. Uh, next week, we're going to be moving on to the fantastic Blackout Ripper. Uh, this has been a case that I've been research. Well, I've been doing it on my tour for about two and a half years. Um, they opened up the new court documents. Nice, big, juicy file about a year ago. So I've been working on this case for at least the last six, seven months, intensively over the last three or four months. Uh, so this is going to be a four-part episode. Um, this will be the first time that all of the evidence has been brought together into a proper episode. When you hear about the Blackout Ripper on TV, a lot of the researchers who do the evidence, they don't have time to do it properly. So they, they you know, they, they, it's a hodgepodge. It's a bit of a, a bun fight they piece together just random pieces of information it's not always correct and they don't get it right whereas what i've done is systematically sat down and gone through all 1600 pages of this new file to create a four-part series about the blackout ripper not gonna miss stuff out unless unless it's really dull and boring and uneventful but what i'm gonna do is try and give you a full overview of the case of the blackout ripper about each of his victims about the ones who survived and even better try to get down to the bare bones of who the blackout ripper was what do we know about him we know his name but where does he come from what is he about how did he start why did he become the blackout ripper (gasps) very look very much looking forward to this uh these this four-parter which I'm going to start writing today. Ooh! Right. That was Extra Mile. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you have any questions you want to ask me, please do feel free to email me either through my website or the Murder Mile Facebook discussion group or on social media. Just ask me any questions and I'll put it into this section of Extra Mile. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. That was Extra Mile. Bye bye. <laughs>